a wise man builds his life on Jesus' instructions, like a house built on a solid foundation. By tuning in today, you are pouring into your life. This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Why those words? When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, why did he give them those words? A lot of things he could put together. But he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He said, it's important that we pray and remember that it's his kingdom come and his will be done. He said, it's important that you ask God to guide you through the temptations and the trials. He said, it's important that you ask to be delivered from evil. Why those things? I think there's a story behind the prayer. In fact, it's that story that I'd love us to spend some time on this morning. Maybe you've seen on, on Facebook or YouTube a story behind a song, you know, what was going on in the artist's life and why they wrote this particular case in point. The big box stores are going to start rolling out Christmas decorations now, right? Because it's almost time for Christmas. What's the number one Christmas song of all time? White Christmas. White Christmas. Yeah, thousands and thousands and millions and millions of copies. What's that song about? If you've watched the movie, right, Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney, Danny Kaye, you know, this beautiful inn in Vermont and the snow's falling down. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story, right? It's just not the story that goes along with that song. That song's actually about Christmas in Beverly Hills, California. It's true. If you read the lyrics, it was written about someone who is having Christmas in Beverly Hills, California, and they're dreaming about a white Christmas, there is a story behind the Lord's Prayer. There's a reason behind why we are called to pray the way that prayer says to pray. And it's that idea I'd like us to work through this morning. Last week we began a series in the book of Revelation. Kind of went through what's called the prologue uh, of the book. Just the first eight chapters. Learning what apocalypse is and, and prophecy. To hear from God. To see things from God's perspective. That it's a letter. It's a letter to seven particular churches 2,000 years ago. But it's also a letter for us. That calls us to be faithful witnesses. And there is blessing in that. A great blessing. If you weren't able to be with us. Who is houseontherock.com. You can get caught up uh, on that teaching. But let's do something that might seem a bit unconventional. Instead of going into the next section in chapter 1, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 12. We're going to hit chapter 12, 13, and 14 today. Three chapters. You're like, are you serious? We're going to be here while you preach through three chapters. <laughs> it took you 45 minutes last week to do eight, chap eight verses, and now we're going to go three chapters. It'll be okay, because we're going to do it in a very broad way. One of our challenges, I think, in reading the book of Revelation is that we kind of get hung up on the trees and we miss the whole forest. 
Well, I think we need to see the whole forest. And these three chapters give us seven pictures, seven images, if you will, like a giant tapestry that hangs in a castle. John is drawing us to a center because 12, 13, and 14 is the theological center and the actual center of the book. And then if you can get these seven images, you are able to maneuver your life and the book of Revelation. If you don't have these seven symbols, these seven images, you're going to be confused every day of your life. You're not going to know why certain things happen. You're not going to know where certain things are going. Okay? So let me challenge you. Well, let's find Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14. Ryan will have the verses up on the screen for us to follow along. And we're going to work through these images together and find the blessing that God promises those who read it, who hear it, and who keep the words in this letter. Take out your notes that you received. Let me start Revelation chapter 12. I am going to read all of chapter 12, and then I'm going to make a couple observations together. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and moon at under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadem. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no place for any of them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He, who's, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, will you guys read this part with me? Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Let me finish reading the rest of the chapter for you. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman is given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he 
stood on the sand of the sea. Two big symbols right in this chapter, and let's write them down together. The first one is this, it's a mother. It's a mother. Beginning of chapter 12, write that down, a mother. And we're told from the beginning she appeared in heaven. That's important. Throughout these chapters, John is going to draw reference to certain types of people and groups of people based on that locality, those who are in heaven and those who are on earth. Not necessarily being in heaven and being in earth geographically, but symbolically. Those who are in heaven are of God's kingdom. And so here we have a woman who represents the people of God's kingdom. And from this woman comes a child. That's an important verse in, in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's a, that's a link back to Psalm 2, a very messianic psalm describing God and his king who stand on Mount Zion. So we are told from the get-go, this mother and the people that she represents, Israel, spiritual Israel, and Jesus that comes from her. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's important for you to know, as you look at the world, as you look at the book of Revelation, that God has purpose. God has a purpose, an intention, and a design. And he is playing out that purpose. But like every story, there's a villain, isn't there? So write down another symbol. It defeated Deceitful dragon. A defeated, deceitful dragon. And this is a villain that is opposing and resisting this woman. And it says for 1,260 days. Now this is apocalypse. That means that numbers mean something. It's not about 1,260 days or three and a half years. But it is figuring, wait a second, three and a half, that's half of seven. We learned last week that seven is the number of completeness, the number of fullness. So to say 1,260 is to say for a temporary period. For a temporary season, this woman and this dragon are going to be in deadlock, gripped, war, battle between the two, the two of them. Now it's a period, it's a season, it's not forever, it's not eternal. But the woman is protected by God, but this dragon hates and pursues God's people. He's defeated, right? We were shown that. He was kicked out of heaven. He started in heaven, started in heaven, but was cast down to earth. And there he wages war. He is defeated. The villain in the story, the villain in your reality is defeated. The villain in your life is defeated. What you feel that you battle against and wage against and deal with on a regular basis, the thing that is the thorn in the flesh of your face, is defeated. But he's deceitful. He's a deceitful dragon. He lies. That is his weapon. That is his cunning. That is what he does. And we are constantly being confronted with those lies. Deceitful, defeated, and determined to lay waste. It says that he goes off to wage war against the offspring of the woman, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
We are in the middle of an epic battle. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 16. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The devil is not waging war against God. The devil is waging war against the church. But the church will be victorious. In the same way that the dragon came against Jesus through Herod to kill him, the dragon now comes against us. You are in an epic battle. We are in this story, and it's a story with monsters, isn't it? Let's read some more. Revelation 13. Revelation 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And to the dragon, to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's six to sevens. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of the faith of the saints. All right, we have a mother, we have a defeated, deceitful dragon. Now we have an imperial beast. An imperial beast to be aware of. Write that down in your notes. And we're told that he rises out of the sea. That's a, a big Jewish symbol. Anything that comes out of the sea is coming out of chaos. The sea is chaos. How many of you learned to swim when you were a kid? Took swim lessons or just a parent that threw you out there and said, you can do it. That's just kind of part of growing up, right? If you're a parent, you want your kids to be able to swim. And this, this was not a time back then where there was swim lessons. The sea is chaos. The sea is a fearful. The, the sea is a dragon. The sea is something that just destroys. It's dark. It's murky. There's waves. There's storms. So throughout Hebrew literature, when you read sea, you need to think chaos. Here is a big beast that comes from chaos. And what John does is he takes a bunch of symbols from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is an apocalyptic chapter in the Old Testament where Daniel sees four empires and he talks about them like they're animals. Well, that one's like a lion and that one's like a bear and that one's like a leopard. Well, John, following the same suit, takes all of those and he smashes them together all into one beast. He says, this is a big beast. And it conquers and stomps on everything. It's a beast that's across the sea. He starts to point his finger at the Roman Empire. But he does it in symbol. 
That's what all that mortal was wounded, healed language is talking about. When Nero committed suicide, the Roman Empire went all crazy because who's going to be in charge? And there was a season in one year where there were four different emperors. And it kind of looked like the Roman Empire wasn't going to survive. That had been mortally wounded. But other emperors rise up, Domitian and the like, and the Roman Empire kind of musters its force and goes at conquering the world again, calling for worship, instituting emperor worship in various temples in the great cities, calling everyone to allegiance. But what John is telling us is behind that beast, there's a dragon that gives it power, a dragon that gives it force, calling others Calling everyone. The emperor was to be called the son of God. Rome was considered the eternal heavenly city. And it ruled over every tribe, nation, and tongue. Those who dwell on the earth. It's working to enslave everyone. What's important to note, though, is that while he's talking about Rome, nowhere does he mention the word Rome. It's nowhere in here. And I think that's important. What he does start to call the beast, though, is Babylon. How many of you recognize the term Babylon? Okay, Babylon is an Old Testament enemy. Babylon is the great enemy of Israel in the Old Testament. Comes off, sacks the city of Jerusalem, leads people into bondage. You want an old enemy? Call them Babylon. That's like calling someone Darth Vader. Like, uh-huh, Yeah. That's how he describes this beast. This beast is Babylon. And beasts will come who are Babylon-ish. And we must endure their hostility. Rome was a beast. Communist China, a beast. The Third Reich, a beast. Calling for worship and laying waste to any who would get in their way. And so he says, you must endure. You must discern, see through the deceitfulness in the lies to understand what lies behind the powers that be. But please do not equate beast with government in general. Okay? From the beginning, God raises up government. Now governments can become beastie. They can become Babylonish. And it's the church's responsibility to hold up a mirror to government and say, hey, this is wrong, or this is what is right, or we need to be a voice here. We need to be mindful of this, because behind government is something else lurking in the corners. Agencies can become corrupted. Organizations can become corrupted. There's a great dragon behind the scenes. But there's more than one monster in this story. Let's keep reading. Revelation 13, starting in verse 11, another beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs. 
even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It's a reference to Nero. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. This is probably the most famous verse in the whole book, right? Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, this is why you came, right? This is why I'm here. I want to know the good stuff. 666, let's get on with this. Like, do I got the mark or not? I got this tattoo when I was 16. Am I done for? (laughs) We have a mother. We have... A deceitful dragon, we have an imperial beast, but here we have local lackeys. Local lackeys. A lackey is someone's servant who does their bidding. A local lackey. We are told that this beast comes out of the earth. The first beast rose out of where? Remember the sea. This beast rises out of the earth. The earth is where I live. This is a local beast that I am confronted with on a daily basis. He looks like a lamb. He has two horns like a lamb. He presents himself like the deliverer, like a savior, but he talks with the voice of a dragon. He is a liar and is the local lackey's job to enslave people to the beast. Historically, this would have been imperial priests. It would have been uh, local officials who wanted to curry favor with Rome, who would build temples and statues to emperors and call everyone to worship in these temples. And if you did not worship at the temple, you would not get your writ or your permission slip to go sell in the market. A little bit of a financial pressure, if you will. If you want to sell in the market, if you want to have a livelihood... If you want to have income, you're going to need to go to the temple and you're going to need to make a sacrifice to the emperor Domitian, whoever was the emperor at the time. You need to pledge allegiance to the Roman Empire. If you don't do that, well, you don't get your permission slip. You don't get your mark. It would put a lot of pressure on a Christ follower who believes that Jesus alone is to be worshipped. Jesus alone is to be praised. And we're going to see when we look at these letters in the beginning part of the book that certain churches did not maneuver this tension very well. But each of these local expressions are just that local expressions of these dark forces. And it's going to be different in everywhere. Being a Christian is different here than being a Christian in England, being a Christian in China. The temptations and the trials are different. And you read through the letters, these seven letters. Each of the letters are different. And each of the church's responses are different. But there's pressures there nonetheless. These are local. Now, what's the deal with the mark? Well, Paul, I was reading Facebook. And it tells me that if you add up Biden's name and Trump's name, and you divide that by 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue... And add that to the stock market number today. 
It gives you 666. I bet it does. Because that's what John was talking about 2,000 years ago. This is a cryptogram. And so he says you need understanding, but if you're a Jew, you know exactly what that means. Okay? Because in the Hebrew language, letters are numbers. Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew, had a number. Each number, each letter had a corresponding number. So you, a word would have a numerical value to it. And since John has been alluding to Rome and the things that are beastie about Rome, to see the number 666, you unpack that, it is Nero Caesar. It's Nero Caesar. So when he says, hey, you want to know who I'm talking about? This is what I'm talking about. This is the mark. This is the issue. This is the beast. There are two different numbers at play, 666 and 616 in two different manuscripts uh, for the book of Revelation. It's basically Neron Caesar 666 or Nero Caesar 666. But that's what it's pointing to. He's saying, think Nero. Nero, who's the first one to really persecute the church, to burn Christians, under whom we lost Peter, under whom we lost Paul. That type of demonism, that type of darkness, that type of shrewdness, that type of self-worship. Nero, who set himself up like a god. It's a temptation for leaders, isn't it? An unholy trinity. An unholy trinity between a dragon, a beast, and its local lackeys. The dragon giving life to the beast. The lackeys calling for worship of that same beast. Like Nero, hell-bent on enslaving the world and destroying us. Where's the hope? This is already a bad story. Well, we've got a few more symbols to look at. So why don't we read through them together? Starting in, in chapter 14, verse 1. Let's find hope. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, another reference to Psalm 2, stood the Lamb with the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Remember, we're dealing with symbols. We're dealing with apocalypse. So let's open this up. And we had a mother, we had a, a dragon, imperial beast, local lackeys, and now we have a faithful company. A faithful company. Write that one down. Number five. Faithful company. We're putting together a, a grid work, a matrix of image that helps us see our world. In the midst of an unholy trinity, God says, don't lose sight of this. He saw on a mount the lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name. 
144,000. Again, we're talking about apocalypse. We're talking about symbolism. So there's something behind the number. It's John's way of saying more than you could possibly count. 12 times 12. More than you could possibly count. All of Israel, all of the church, all the faithful ones gathered together, singing the praises of the Lamb. Their name has been given. God has given his name to them. We have those who dwell on earth who are following the beast. They've been marked out. But these are the ones who bear God's name. I bear my father's name. My sons bear my name. They have been redeemed from the earth, rescued from the earth. And they are first fruits. What's first fruits? What's first fruits? It's the first harvest. Those who've been brought in already for God. Meaning there's more to come. That's not all. There's more. And they sing a majestic, angelic song with the, with the lamb. But it, they're described... They've not defiled themselves with women. They're virgins. They follow wherever the lamb leads them. No deceit is in them. They are ready for battle. For a soldier in Israel, before he could go out to battle, he had to be sexually chaste. He had to be prepared. And these are ready to fight. They are holy. They are ready. They are singing. First fruits. All right, well, this is starting to sound good. I'm not by myself. I'm not just against this unholy trinity. I have a whole group that's already gone before who has been faithful and is gathered with the lamb. Starting in verse six, another image. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, the angel, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, following them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image, receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image Whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. We have a faithful company and now we have an eternal gospel. An eternal gospel that John wants us to remember. Gospel means good news, the message that King Jesus has come and he's bringing in a kingdom that is both now and not yet. This is a call to repentance, this eternal gospel. Notice who it's directed towards. The eternal gospel proclaimed to those who dwell on earth. 
Every nation and tribe and language and people. And what is he doing? He's calling them to turn from the beast. He's calling them to turn from the lies of the local lackeys. So to stop giving allegiance to Rome, but to follow the one who actually created. The first angel says, fear God. Rome is not your savior. The local lackeys are not your savior. They're not there to deliver you. But fear God and fear God alone. Another angel says, hey, Babylon is defeated. Babylon has been laid waste to. We get to the end of the letter, we're going to see that in very cool, vibrant colors, how God will destroy Babylon. And thirdly, a warning. Babylon's followers will share in Babylon's fate. Babylon's followers share in Babylon's fate. And so a message of grace, a message of repentance, a message of love, of reality check. This empire is not your God and it will not set you free. A faithful company, an eternal gospel, an invitation to turn to God and finally and lastly, a great harvest. A great harvest to remember. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man. That's from Daniel 7. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. All right now, follow along. This is where things get a little shaky. Like now things get shaky. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, an angel who has authority over the fire, who called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and, it threw, and then threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. That's important. And blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, unpacking this one's a little bit more tricky. And as you can imagine, translations and interpretations abound. We have two harvests being described. Some will say that, well, the first harvest is the saints, the second harvest is for those who are allegiant to the beast. Maybe, but I don't think so. And I'm not alone in this interpretation. After all, harvests are times of celebration. Harvests are great times. Times for singing, times for dying, times for festival, times to rejoice. I mean, if you live from harvest to harvest to harvest, you look at the shelves and they're pretty bare right now. And so for the harvest to come in is something to be excited about. And so we see first Jesus go through and he harvests the saints. Those who lived a full life, an obedient life. Those who, like we would hope, fall asleep 
at night and just wake up in the arms of Jesus. It's, it's precious. It's beautiful. But that's not the only reality. And he is reminding us to endure. There's a second type of harvest. And it's bloody. Like wine being pressed. And like wine that flows forth. I think he's describing those who will be martyred for their faith. Those who do not compromise. He says, outside the city, Jesus was martyred outside the city. Stephen, the first martyr, was martyred outside the city. And their blood is gathered by God like a great cup of his wrath that he will then throw upon, flow upon Babylon the Great in his judgment for killing the innocents and those who are allegiant to Jesus alone. Again, a call for endurance for the saints. So in the midst of an unholy trinity, we have a faithful company already gathered, singing the songs of Jesus, an internal gospel that continues to go out, calling the world to repentance. And Jesus himself bringing the saints home, and some at great cost. These are the symbols, the images that John gives us so that we can process our world. To keep these ideas always in front of us. And in fact, the reason we've done this, now we can go back and work our way through the book of Revelation with these ideas always there. This is the story. This is the narrative that's at play. The whole story. There are seven symbols. It's a lens for our world. Churches do not compromise. Receive the challenge of those who've gone ahead of us. What do we battle against? 2,000 years ago when John was writing this, you were being invited to compromise your faith. You were being called out to go worship at the temple. But what do we face? What are the expressions of the beast that are at play? What are the lies that are constantly being fed to us that we need to learn to discern? What are the issues of injustice where we need to hold up a mirror and say, hey, no, Jesus is king. One of the chains that binds us and leads humanity in lies, I think, are sexual chains. The message of sex is a big player. There is a rhythm to relationships and sexual intimacy fits within God's rhythm. And if you step outside of that, it produces chaos seen it time and time and time again. One woman has written about this extensively. Jennifer Robach, Morris scholar, wife, mom, founded a comprehensive pro-life, pro-family think tank called the Ruth Institute. And she's been studying the, uh, the fruits of the sexual revolution that came out of the 60s and 70s. Listen to some of her observations. The body count of the sexual revolution is enormous, considering the aborted babies alone. Add in suicide, depression, unhappiness, loneliness, and all other consequences of family breakdown and sexual license. This is a staggering toll. The concentrations of power into the hands of the sexual revolutionary ruling class, the intolerance of dissent, 
The use of re-education programs. All these features are strikingly similar to communist regimes and movements around the world. At the Ruth Institute, we describe those who are harmed as victims and hopefully survivors of the sexual revolution. Survivors include the children of divorce, abandoned spouses, reluctantly single parents, post-abortive women, and people with all sorts of health problems, from contraception to abortion and casual sex. Survivors would include what they call refugees from the hookup culture of the LGBT subculture. That is, people who participated in it and walked away because it made them miserable. We can also include those who we call heartbreak, heartbroken career women. Women who had their educations and careers their top priority but we're not able to have the children that they wanted. The current scapegoats, Christians, who are holding out for traditional sexual morality. She quotes, if only you Christians would stop making everyone feel guilty, we could have all the lifetime guilt-free, problem-free sex we want. When over half of, listen to this, when over half of first births are to unmarried parents, there's a systemic problem. There are cultural, economic, and social forces that are systemically steering people towards destructive life choices. And John said so. I've been following some of your comments and concerns about the independent film Cuties on Netflix. Maybe you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. It was produced to confront the reality of sexualization of women, specifically at a younger age. I read the reviews. I watched the trailer. And I think I would stand by the criticism that you cannot confront the sexualization of women by sexualizing women in the movie. Okay? Basically, 11-year-old girls who are twerking and doing sexually explicit dance moves dressed in sexually explicit ways. that will be used by predators to embed sexually divisive habits that they've already started to develop, while at the same time furthering the sexual problems that we have as a culture. So yeah, I think sex is one of the chains that's used that we need to learn to discern and help people maneuver. Financial chains Money, 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 money. Follow the money. Credit card monsters, consumerism, inequality in the workplace. Money is used to leverage power in the same way that it was used 2,000 years ago. Money is used today. How are we mindful of those temptations? How are we speaking against the injustices? How are we not being led through the deceitfulness of those lies to believe that money is the help for all evil. Violence against the innocents. Where you see violence perpetuated against the innocents, you see the beasts and you see the dragons. Other roots, other false idols. Creating of a god, sports teams, 
hobbies, relationships, lies that lead to chaos. Where do you see chaos in your life? I need everyone to bear with me for a couple minutes, okay? I've practiced this speech many times. My wife's ulcer just exploded again. I'm going to work real hard to try to poke at everyone. So just if I haven't poked at you yet, just hold on, please. We have an election coming up, right? Can governments become beastie? Can political parties become beastie? Yeah, all right. Which, here's, this is your right. Let's say you lean this way to the right in your political values and those that you often affirm and vote for. You lean to the right. Are there beastie tendencies to the right? Are there? Can a heightened sense of nationalism become beastie? Because you can be pro-life and anti-everybody else who's not a citizen of the United States. Jesus came for every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Valuing military might to leverage your national agenda. It's kind of like Rome, isn't it? How about if you lean to the left? Can leading to the left be a little beastie? Are there beastie tendencies to the left? Sure. You recognize the importance of social justice. The importance of being a voice for the voiceless, right? But we must be the voice for everybody, right? Especially the unborn. Violence against the innocents, that's beastie. And you're like, well, I don't believe a two-party system is, there's no room for a Christian in a two-party system. So I fight for something else. Okay. They're still right and wrong. And human is not free. He is chained. And there are dark forces about his heart. And left to his own devices, he will do what's best for him at any time. So the call for the endurance of the saints when you come to the election is to pray and to discern. Pulling your party line, you need to do your research. Because you can be pro this and anti-God at the same time. That was fun. All right. <laughs> All right. We good? We good? Okay, good. All right. I love you guys. All right, let's sing about Jesus. That's awesome. Okay. Endure. Resist evil. As the artists come up, let me close with something. Again, we're going to take these seven symbols and we're going to see them throughout the book of Revelation. The reason we did it now was that let's say... Um, if I just preached straight through the book of Revelation, you wouldn't get to these seven symbols until who knows how far down the road. When it is the historical context, the visual grid work that John and his readers see everything. So that's why we jumped ahead and then we'll jump back. I was at a time a Civil War buff. Appreciate the history of 19th century America. 
and its importance in helping me see the world today as I do. If you visit Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, three-day terrible battle, the greatest battle of the war, some would say. You go to the visitor center, you can walk up a set of long steps into what's called the Great Cyclorama. That is an artistic rendering of the whole battle in 360 degrees. You walk up the steps and you are literally in the middle of the battle as they portray through sight and sound the gory three days of Gettysburg. The cannons that fire, the soldiers that scream, the movements here, the tactics there, the strategy unfolding, the destruction of life. We too are in this story. We are in a battle that is unfolding, a battle that we are a part of. And yes, there is a first fruits that stands with Jesus singing a tremendous song, the faithful ones, calling us to be faithful as the eternal gospel still goes out and the harvest of Jesus comes in. But as you walk through the visitor's center, you hear that hymn from the Civil War, the battle hymn of the Republic. You're very familiar with it. The words come right from the book of Revelation. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. But don't forget the last line. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. Let's stand. Jesus said there are two ways to build your life. A wise man builds his life on God's instructions like a house on a strong foundation. For more teaching from this ministry, go to whoishouseontherock.com. If you don't have a church, please consider being our guest on a Sunday morning. Again, visit whoishouseontherock.com for more information.